Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Today, we have Sarah Hart Unger, a pediatric endocrinologist and residency program director in South Florida. She's also the mother of three, wife of a vascular surgeon, and hosts the Best of Both Worlds podcast and Best Laid Plans podcast. Sarah, it's so great to have you on the show. Hi, I have to make a minor correction, which is that I co-host Best of Both Worlds. I never want to take full credit for that effort. I do it as a joint effort with Laura Vanderkam, who is a time management expert and author and speaker, actually. So we provide kind of a nice counterpoint there. (laughs) Great, great. Actually, that's how I came across some of your material was through another podcast you were doing with Dr. Bradley Block, and he's a friend. So I had to tell him that I was poaching one of his old um, (laughs) guests at that point. And he explained what the shoebox was SHU for Sarah Hart Unger. So Yeah, that makes a lot more sense now. I wasn't quite sure where that came from, but we'll get into a little bit more about your work so far and your podcast, but I do want to start off with an icebreaker question, and that is, how do you think you are changing medicine or medical education right now for the better? I think that as a program director, one of the things I do is I do a lot of discussion about work-life balance and kind of lifestyle management and just like trying to create a vision for my residents of what they are going to want their eventual lives to look like. And I build that into the training, both in kind of purposeful, kind of, I don't know, more concrete ways, but then also try to do it more abstractly under the surface just by modeling and talking to them. So I think that's something that's been kind of left out of things sometimes in a very, especially for women who many of us have goals of being an active parent and then also succeeding as a physician. And yet I trained at a big academic place where I had some great moral models, but I felt like formally it was something that was just not talked about. So I bring that into the forefront of my conversations, not saying that that has to be the dream for everyone. Of course, I support my residents in whatever kind of path they want to take. But I think that it's something that should be woven in from the very beginning and not an afterthought. So I think that's my contribution. That's my change. (laughs) That's great. I know there's always a lot of confusion with work-life balance and especially those with kids either in med school or early residency, just so much to balance and to organize and trying to, like you said, stay kind of complete and balanced through all aspects of your life. So I do want to get into that a little bit and some of the organizational strategies you cover and just how residents can really, I guess, approach the, let's say the upcoming academic year, since we were just discussing residency a little bit before we hopped on the call here. What are some things that maybe the incoming residents, since this will probably be released a few months before the new season starts, what can they do now to maybe plan ahead? So what can they do to plan ahead? I wouldn't do too much in terms of academic prep. Although if due to the pandemic, you feel like you really haven't had the clinical base that you feel like you need, then doing some reading or online simulated type of material can always be helpful. But I wouldn't put pressure on yourself to spend all of your time doing that. Instead, I would corral that into some very specifically defined part of your day. Like I am going to spend 
from, I don't know, four to 6 p.m., three days a week doing that. And the rest of the time, I would focus on just really making your life, getting your life together in other ways. That may mean if you have kids, like figuring out what your routines are going to look like and figuring out your childcare. If you do not have things together from a health perspective, it may be figuring out how you're going to fit in exercise as a resident or how you're going to you know, plan to eat healthy, whether that means meal planning, cooking, whatever. And I also think working on your general time management and organizational skills before you start so that you have a system that has you on the ground running from the beginning is definitely a helpful thing to do. That's something that I try to stress in the other show, The Medical Nemonist, a lot is just organization because we can be very productive, but a lot of times we don't know how. We were never trained. We never had to do it, you know, in undergrad or previous to med school. And then we just kind of hit the floor running, still not really receiving the correct instruction or knowing different ways to approach these very complicated schedules that we usually get stuck with. So I guess I'm curious if you had just a broad overview of maybe what a student incoming resident could do ahead of time to think about ahead of time to plan ahead of time because i know once that schedule is already made there just the first draft it's so much easier to adapt it later as your life changes and it's going to do you have a particular method that you use for approaching that i don't i think everybody's method can be different i do think there are some rituals and tenets that do apply to everyone, whether you are using electronic systems to organize, paper systems to organize, and no matter what kind of program you're going into. I think everyone needs to be paying attention to different cycles in their life, whether that means monthly, where you're looking at goals of big things you want to achieve each month. And those could really be tailored to which rotation you're on. The goals that you might want to set when you are on a picky rotation should be very different than the goals that you might want to set on a much lighter scheduled elective rotation. So really kind of thinking about how your life structure might differ and what priorities you want to continue, even when you're working hard and what can be kind of set aside a little bit. I think that building rituals in like a weekly review where you go through your email, you look for everything from your program director that was supposed to be assigned. You kind of corral all your projects in one organized place, whether that's a bunch of Apple notes files or some kind of paper system, it doesn't matter what you're using. Some people like Trello. I could see how that would actually work very nicely for residency because you could have like a card for each project that's ongoing with information there. Again, your methods are going to vary and I would never, I think people really enjoy using different modalities when they organize and being told which one to use is not, it's just so not a one size fits all thing, but figuring out how you are going to keep all your ducks in a row when things get incredibly busy is helpful. And again, kind of building those routines in even before you start. I like it. And I kind of want to move from there a little to see at this point in time, the 215,000 pound elephant in the room. And that's about the number of COVID deaths we have right now. And COVID is such a large topic in academic medicine right now. And actually, I'm probably distracting you because I have a COVID haircut right now that's not cooperating very well. <laughs> so a lot of students are concerned about how to approach especially this year, since a lot of students haven't been able to go into a lot of programs. They haven't been able to get the clinical experience that the previous year was able to. And there's a chance that some of this is still going to be going on next year. So for students that are really stressed out about, let's say, getting a residency spot in a certain location, so they want to go do an elective rotation there or something along those lines, that option's off the table in a lot of hospitals and a lot of university settings. So what 
would you recommend to these students right now? Is this something to worry about or are there any other options out there for them? I think they should not worry because the truth is if it's off the table for one person, it is off the table for every person. So for the most part, most of the residents that match in our program did not previously rotate at our hospital. And that's because we have pretty tight regulation who, about who rotates. And we did even pre-COVID because we have certain medical schools that we have kind of contracts with, and therefore we can't take a lot of outside schools. But that certainly doesn't mean that we're not going to look at someone from an outside institution and be very excited to match them. So I do think that programs are going to be much more completely understanding of the different experience backgrounds that people have. And the playing field is going to be fairly level because all resident, all medical students everywhere are, are pretty much restricted in some way, unfortunately. I think, you know, the most that you can do within your school to get as much live experience as you can and to make the most of those rotations where you can't necessarily spend the entire day there. But even if you're just going in for rounds, see what kinds of projects you can accomplish outside of that. Try to use your time really, really productively. See if there's a case report you can write up. I mean, that will be something you, great you could do with your time that will also impress future program directors interviewing you, perhaps. So again, I do work in pediatrics, which is not an incredibly difficult field to match in. So this may be different if I were a radiology program director or dermatology or something like that. But for us, I would say, do not stress. We know, we understand. We also know there may be a little bit more of a learning curve in our residents when they start. Although, I mean, our current first-year residents were impacted end of your fourth year med school year was impacted by the pandemic. I know fourth year of med school tends to be a little bit less intense anyway. And maybe by March, a lot of people are done with the meat and potatoes of their training. So maybe it wasn't a huge impact, but I think it was still impacted a little, but you know, it's a steep learning curve and we get you in there and we got lots of PPE and now, you know, working along COVID, it's just kind of a reality that we've all sort of learned to deal with and deal with safely. So I think that you should try not to stress to the extent possible. Do you know students looking for a clinical rotation outside of their school's network? Students can reach out to preceptors nationwide and schedule their own rotations. You can even refer a friend and earn credit towards your future rotations. Go to findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. I wonder how this differs for American medical students versus IMGs like myself, as we were kind of discussing a little beforehand too, since my school, for instance, was so small, it doesn't have direct affiliations with many hospitals. So a lot of students will use rotation agencies or try to schedule their own elective rotations. We also don't qualify for VSAS, for instance. So we're very, very limited there for the higher academic institutions, but we also have more opportunities possibly in private clinics and other settings that are more likely to be open right now and accepting students because they're less high risk patient population, I should say. <laughs> so I wonder if that's going to play a part in any of this as well, or if you have any insights on that. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess I would say as a, again, as someone who looks at applications, if someone has had experience, for example, in some private pediatric cardiology clinic or something versus a nearby hospital, I would look on that just as favorably. In fact, they're probably more likely to have had full days of training versus these truncated inpatient experiences that some of our Port Med students around the country are having because of, you know, restriction on the amount of minutes they can spend in the hospital and other things like that. 
So I, yes, if those kinds of experiences are available to you, outpatient, inpatient, ambulatory center, whatever it may be, I think that those are really just as worthy and likely will be taken just as seriously on your application, particularly this year. Again, I mean, I don't think there's only a certain number of American grads to go around. So people are still going to be interested in Caribbean grads. And so I don't think it takes you off the table in any, in any way, shape or form. I just, I agree. You probably need to find ways to try to make the most of the experience. And I think that will show through in the ways that people have been creative and have managed to get the training and will be just as much more impressed by the drive to get that done, even under difficult circumstances. Ingenuity. That was the word I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a perfect segue because there's been a lot of discussion recently since the news of step one going past fail a few months ago. It hasn't gotten there yet, but that it's going to be going there. Was it next year or? The 2022? It's, it's 2022, but I'm not sure if that means it's for the 2022 match, which would really be next year. Yeah, I guess I'm uncertain about that as well. Probably have to look into that afterwards. But that brings up an interesting point about the ingenuity of the student, because as much as I agree with step one going to pass fail versus a three digit score, it's been argued that a lot of foreign medical graduates, international graduates, Caribbean students, that's how they distinguish themselves is by having higher test scores. Now, whether that relates to being a better student or patient care or anything has been part of the huge debate, but this might close the doors for some foreign students, uh, some Caribbean students, for instance. What are some ways that you've seen students be very ingenious about adding more to their CV, about standing out? Yeah, so the ones that stand out are the ones, I'll say there's two avenues that usually impress me a lot. Actually, there's several ways to impress me. One way is to have gone really, really deep on one thing. So I actually cannot stand when I see like 60 different volunteer things. Cause I'm like, well, if you did 60 things, like how many of them did you really care about? How many of them were just like one day things that you wanted to put on your CV? I think some schools have the idea that volume is what matters. No, 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 no. So if you like started your own private own clinic or, you know, maybe joined an existing clinic and improved it in certain ways and kind of were with that one clinic the entire time you were there. And you can tell me about the different innovations you brought to that clinic and the way that you help people at that clinic and the hours that you spent. Like, I'm going to be much more impressed than seeing this day, this day, this day. Like, I know, or some people will put stuff like diabetes walk. I'm like, well, great. But that was like two hours. (laughs) Anyway, so I think depth is really, really important when it comes to service and also whether you had some sort of innovation or leadership role. So that's one way to distinguish yourself. Letters are another way. I mean, a really great letter from someone who truly knows you and has worked with you can be really powerful. And I do think that letters are going to hold more weight with the absence of step one. And I think that's a good thing because in a way, someone who can really speak to you and as someone who's gotten used to reading letters, I can sort of tell when someone just dashed off a template and when someone really knows the person. So getting that letter that has some meaning to it. And I would say from a student angle, see if when you're asking for letters, you could spend a little bit of time with that person talking about your goals, talking about, you know, what makes you excited to move on to residency, because I think sometimes the letter writers need to get more of a flavor for really your essence so they can write you the best letter possible to see if you can, you know, take your preceptor out for coffee or go for a walk on the beach with them. If you're in the Caribbean, I don't know, is that what people do down there? Do something with them in order to help to make sure they really know you. So that letter can impress the program directors that it gets to. And then research, of course, is another, although I don't think research should just be done for the sake of research. It's nice when someone's really gone deep in one area and has worked with somebody in a lab and has kind of produced things over time. 
I also have to say like a first author paper is always a lot more impressive than like three middle author papers where I have to wonder like, okay, did that person just run the PCR that like got into the paper or were they really part of crafting the project themselves? Okay. So of those three, I am probably in a lot of trouble. <laughs> That's absolutely not true. You have a podcast. You have two podcasts, which are growing and successful. And that's a project that you have gone very, very deep in that you probably have a lot of passion in and you would be able to talk about. So I think that would fit upon kind of within that service realm. It's more of a side hustle type of a business, but I think that's a passion project that has gone deep. So I disagree with you. I think that this in itself is going to be an asset to you on the interview trail. Well, all right, let's take this. Let's break it down then. A little bit of self-serving here, but maybe some audience members will either be able to relate or be interested in getting into something like this. So again, coming from my background from a small Caribbean school, lacking resources, we didn't have much in the way of research we could do there. So that was kind of out. And then for the letters of recommendation, I've been saying this since season one of this show, but before I started this show, I didn't really know the difference between a letter of recommendation and asking for a strong quote unquote letter of recommendation. <laughs> so that's not something I asked for for my letters. So I don't know if those are going to benefit me at all. So at this point, I would kind of be relying on the podcasts, on the book, on the blogs, on these little side gig things. But I don't know how much those actually stand out to residency program directors. It's a kind of hit or miss. It probably is hit or miss, depending on the generation and the understanding of the PD. I mean, I'm someone who would probably be excited about podcasts. I don't know about if that would be universal. I mean, that's my completely honest answer. But I think if you're able to talk about it and show your passion and kind of talk about the number of students you've reached and the tricks you've learned and built on the Medical Mnemonist podcast and all that, I think that would generate some enthusiasm. And I also think about, you know, asking for a letter versus a strong letter. If you're asking from a letter from someone who has really gotten to know you in some way, and I know that can be hard depending on where you are, I think that helps. I mean, one of the strongest letters I ever wrote was with a student from a local med school who did an elective in my specialty, and he was with me the entire month, and I just saw how much passion he had for that specialty. And in fact, he's now trying to match as a fellow in that specialty. So obviously, I had all this one-on-one -on -one time to get to work with him, and so his letter was fantastic because I really knew him, and I knew his goals and what was good about how he was a med student. So I think the more kind of personal relationship you have with the faculty that write your letters, the better they're going to be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And something that I've heard a lot and experienced myself is the preceptor saying, okay, you write the first draft, and then they'll go back and edit it afterwards. And like, okay, I have no idea what to write about myself. I don't know what I'll stands be honest, out. <laughs> I think that's lazy on the part of the <laughs> preceptor. <laughs> I will ask people for their CV because sometimes I just want to get a more holistic picture of like what they've done or I don't know, partly because I just sort of want them to have to submit something. I actually think going ahead and telling the student to write the letter for me and I'll change stuff is a little bit. Okay, fair enough. I don't love that. <laughs> I think even in undergrad, when I was asking for letters from biology professors for med school, they were like, well, you know, at least write a paragraph or write like your top three to five achievements or something like that. So, right. That's like asking for a CV. That's yeah, not like writing a letter. True. For that, you. that makes a little more sense and gives them a guideline without you actually. Yeah, a framework to start draft. from. Correct. Okay. So then moving on from the step one issues, the possible lack of clinical education issues that we might be coming up with this next year. Let's say a student has now gone through all of their required exams. They have been accepted into a residency program. We sort of discussed some 
basic outlines for organization for scheduling your material. But I think you cover a lot of productivity hacks as well, right? So making this more efficient with your time, not just being organized, but actually being very, very productive with your time. What are some skills or techniques that would be specifically important maybe to this population? I think the biggest thing you can do is to honestly plan out your week and plan out your day and think about how you can make the most of that day and make sure you have exactly what your goals are in mind and then define goals for each day and decide how you're going to work towards them. And those can be incremental as well. You may have some goals that it might be that you want to read 10 minutes of some nonfiction thing each day. And that might not seem like a lot, but if you read 10 pages, well, that's 300 pages a month. That's a book a month. And now all of a sudden you're reading a book a month more than you were before. Again, I don't have like one specific method that works. So it's hard to distill this, but I actually think the basic, basic principle of taking time to plan is like that whole adage about sharpening your knife, right? Like if you ask me to cut down a tree, I'm going to spend the first 45 minutes sharpening my saw. Planning is the sharpening of your saw as a med student, as a resident, as an applicant in general. So when it comes to all those nagging tasks, like putting, I know putting together your application and asking for the letters, all of that is kind of onerous. It's a lot. Make a giant checklist of all the little things you need to do and kind of what the deadlines are. So a lot of them may fit within like a month type of a goal or maybe a quarter or a season. And then as you're planning your week, think about which ones you want to target for each week. And then finally, you're going to go to each day and you're going to wake up and think, okay, I have this scheduled. You know, you may have some hard schedule landscape things. You may be in clinic from eight to four or something like that. So then you'll know that from four to six, you have time to work on a couple of things. Don't assign yourself 15 things to work on. If you only have a two hour window, you have to be very realistic and honest with yourself about the amount of time that you do have to get things done because there's nothing more disheartening than having a list with 20 things on it and then completing one of them. But if you have a list with two things on and you complete one of them and maybe one of them you table for the next day, but think about how you're going to get it done the next day, that doesn't feel so terrible. I think there's not one right way to plan, but I think that everybody should plan. Yeah, I find that I change my method all the time. I'll give my mother credit for this. When we were younger, she always made us do an annual goal setting. So at the beginning of every year, we'd have to write out all the things we wanted in different categories. So what's our academic goal for this year? What's our physical or mental health goal for this year? What's our financial goal for this year? So we kind of got into, me and my brother got into a little bit of a habit doing that at a young age. We hated it at the time, but we would do it. It kept a lot of the old ones too to use as like templates later on. Then obviously it gets more complex. You have all the different med school things, the different personal things. Finances get insane in med school and afterwards. but I agree, kind of categorizing them is one way that's benefited me a lot in the past. And also kind of taking the one thing mentality, like what's the one thing I have to do today? And then if I get that done, then I can look at other things afterwards. But until then, just focus on the one thing. Otherwise you get bogged down by, you know, having 20, 30, 40 things on your list and just, it's too overwhelming. Yes. Now, one thing that's gaining in popularity is the concept of time block planning, which is basically You're assigning every single minute of your day a job. And I didn't make that up. I got that from Cal Newport, who is a fantastic kind of productivity guru in that space. And you can listen to lots and lots more of his work at his podcast. The episodes are like two hours long. So you better get yourself a big cup of coffee and some time. But no, um, time block planning is a way of, you know, making sure that you are making the most of the minutes that you have while working. The caveat to that is that He says, and I agree with him, that you should not plan your entire 24-hour day. You Time block planning is a pretty intense way of 
being. And so it really should be used during the work hours, whatever you define that they are. And by the way, med students, you should define what they are. Your work hours are not like, oh, whenever, you know, I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to work like I'm going to work till midnight. But no, no, no. Like decide what your working hours are going to be, what you're going to get done, and then have some kind of ritual that tells you when you are done. Shut down. You're finished. That's very important to me. It's become less, I don't need to be as formalized about it now that I have kids because it's very obvious. When I walk in the door and my childcare leaves, then clearly I'm not getting any more work done for that day. So I no longer need to you know, make a big ritual of it because it's pretty obvious. But if you don't have kids and you're in that stage of life where things are a little bit more undefined and you kind of expect yourself to work all the time, you may find yourself working less than you want to. So I think being very clear about what your work hours are and what the things are that you want to get done in a given day within reason, very important. All right, that was a mini rant. No, it's perfect. And yeah, that shutdown period is very important and kind of the process of it. I think where I have trouble and a lot of students is probably the startup process. It's just getting in motion, getting things going the right direction. Because once you sit down and you've been in it for five minutes, you're going to keep working on it. But it's that initial part, just getting the momentum towards your goals. It can be very no, tricky. I think that having a shutdown deadline helps with the starting process. Really? And I will tell you that like on days that like on the rare day when I have a break and my kids are somewhere else, like at their grandparents or something, and I don't have a very strict timetable, it can be really hard for me to get started. I'm like, oh, well, let me work out. Let me do this and that because I don't have this deadline looming that I'd better be done by six o'clock. But on my like actual work days, when I know I have a defined window, I'm like, well, I'm hitting the ground running because I know I only have this many hours and then the time's up and I'm going to be done whatever I've done. So actually, I think that defining your end point may help you get going at the beginning point. Hmm. Okay. I guess that makes sense too. That's my pro tip from the other side. <laughs> well, I've really loved all this information and we've covered a lot of really interesting topics. I know there's quite a few places and resources you have available for the audience. What is a great place for them to go to? Yeah. So if you just want general Actually, my blog might be interesting to some of you because it has actually existed since I was a medical student. I started it in, ready for this, 2004 when I was a finishing my second year of med school at Duke. And so there are rants. They're kind of embarrassing, but I also have kept them for posterity. So if you'd like to read about those adventures and then the early days of residency, which are like 2007 to 2010, my fellowship, all of it's archived there. So you can kind of live vicariously through those experiences. So that's at theshoebox.com. And it is a still an active blog now more about parenting and organizing and kind of making it all work. And then again, I co-host Best of Both Worlds with Laura Vanderkam. And I have a new podcast that is all about planning because I'm a total planning nerd. And I actually go as far as like review various planner products and things. And that is called Best Laid Plans. And that's available at wherever you can find podcasts. That's the shoebox, S-H-U. T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com. And that's my Instagram handle as well. You can find me there. Well, Dr. Sarah Hardunger, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was lots of fun. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.